Okay, if you haven't turned there already, Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34, title, Even the Demons Obey Jesus. Even the Demons Obey Jesus. We're seeing Matthew uh, demonstrate the authority of Jesus Christ. He's showing it to us rather with true story after true story of Jesus moving and acting to show His ultimate and unassailable power and authority over everything, over all creation. This morning we'll see that the one who commands the storm, as we just saw in the previous text, also commands demons, and they all obey Him. Jesus is Lord, we say. He is Lord of all, and the demons have no power over Him. It was early in, chapter, in, in, in this chapter that Matthew mentioned in a general way that Many were being brought to Jesus. Remember, there was a summary statement, the sick and even many demon-possessed people. And Matthew noted that Jesus, quote, healed them all. But here now we'll see a particular instance of it. All of these miracles, both the healing of diseases and the demon-possessed, are in anticipation of the cross of Christ, upon which he demonstrates his ultimate power over and victory over Satan and sin and sickness and even death itself. Each healing miracle was a glimpse of this, and so this one too before us this morning. We could, um, we could spend lots of time on each bit and piece, and perhaps there would be value in particular, in spending a great deal of time on a general treatment of demons and Satan and the demonic realm, and we'll certainly address them within the context of this miracle story. But when I preach expositionally, typically, I'm trying to give the same weight to things as seems to be given in the text without losing speed. The primary theme here for Matthew is the absolute authority of Jesus Christ in word and deed. In every area of trouble, nature, illness, demon possession, Jesus has total control and He alone can calm the seas, cure illness, and drive out Demons. The, the demons may try everything they can think of, as, as here, to gain some control and get Jesus to leave them alone, but he casts them out with one word. Well, let's get right to it, but before we do, as we always do, let's pray and ask God's help even in the reading of His Word. Father, thank You for Your Word. We've said already it is the Word of eternal life, the words of eternal life, the words of 
Jesus Christ, words pointing to Him and life in Him. And so where else would we look for help, for truth, about everything? And so by Your grace we do look. And we pray now as, as we do that You would grant wisdom, that You would grant understanding, that You would grant uh, uh, hearts to rise to the subject matter before us, that we would worship even as we watch, as we watch Jesus speak a word and act, and that your word would have its intended effect on us, that we would not resist, that we could not resist the work of your Holy Spirit. May it be so, and may you be glorified as your word is lifted high and Christ magnified. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Matthew eight twenty-eight to 34 then. The he, of course, is Jesus. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The holy and inerrant word of God. What an amazing story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke together place this event after the boat landed, after the storm had been stilled, that is. But Matthew's account is shorter than the other two, and he does not refer to legion or to the desire of the freed men to follow Jesus. As with the, and we discussed it, as with the previous miracle story, Matthew sort of um, cuts away, ruthlessly focuses the lens right at Jesus the whole time. Basically, the whole time. And, and even when he, he cuts words from Jesus or doesn't use the name of Jesus and just has a pronoun there over and over and over, it's, even that seems to highlight 
Jesus, the power and authority of Jesus, just a word, just one word, a complete emphasis on the power of Jesus over the cosmic forces. So you can see how when you come at it this way, there would be a fair amount of distraction if I were to go off and do an excursus, as they say, on demonology. But we'll talk about demons. They're here. Here they are. Three points today as we walk through the text. Number one, verses 28-29, just the story. The two demon-possessed men meet and confront Jesus. Two demon-possessed men meet and confront Jesus. It must have been in sober silence on a calm sea that this group of disciples in wonderment returned to their their oars and resumed rowing to the shore on the other side of the Sea of Galilee to the land of the Gadarenes. This was the western border of an area known as the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. Most of its inhabitants were Gentile. There's a whole discussion here, which I actually pasted into my sermon just for posterity or something. The discussion about what name of the city in Luke, and there's a few options, Gadara, Gerasa, Gergesa, you know, there's some theories, but what I just said is what I think is is probably right based on, on who says what and the weight we give. So this was the western border of an area known as the Ten Cities, and most of its inhabitants were Gentile, thus the pig farming and, and all of that. The people Jesus and the disciples met in the region were obviously Gentiles then, again, because they kept pigs, lots of them, big industry, And no Jew, of course, would have kept such unclean and greatly detested animals, nor would have been around a community that was so driven by by the, uh, the trade. We know what the disciples were thinking as they crossed the lake because it was stated at the end of that preceding story. They were asking themselves, remember, what sort of man is this? He had just hushed the storm and it instantly went quiet. What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? That's what they were thinking. That's what they were saying. While they were asking themselves this question, the demons seemingly are coming out. You know, the, the, the disciples are coming to shore. They're still wondering. They're like, what did we just... And the demons, the demon-possessed men, come out of the tombs. We might say, to tell them who it is. Verse 28 again. And when Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. They come out of the tombs. 
A bit of description quick. So fierce that no one could pass that way. Just a note there. Mark and Luke wrote of one demon-possessed man, but they did not say only one. Perhaps, perhaps one was more violent than the other. Matthew has his way of presenting this one story that happened. Well, so the influence of the demons on these men was obvious, even though Matthew cuts it a bit. Obvious. They were wild, Fierce is our, our translated word there in the ESV. So fierce and violent that it disrupted anything and everyone who came near. Somehow they were forced out of the city and into the tombs, the graveyard. I, I, I'm assuming that wasn't a resolved situation. It's, it's a very unresolved and violent threat. No one can go that I'm sure it wasn't the plan to have no one ever be able to visit the tombs ever again. But that's where they were. That's where they were pushed for the time being. A violent threat just outside of town. A dark cloud just outside the city. No one could pass there. And a simple point and a reminder. And here's where we just pause for a second. Demons are real. Demons are real. Do you doubt that? Have you been led to believe because of our advanced civilization that demons were a manner of speaking for people with insufficient vocabulary and understanding to describe the phenomenon around them. So there's a demon. That's probably a demon. Have you, have you been led to believe that, that there's no such thing? Would you take it on God's Word's authority that there is, in fact, demons? And further, that Satan is real. These are simple things, but worth repeating. Do not be deceived. Demons are real. Satan is real. We battle not against flesh and blood, but instead we wage war in the spiritual realm against real created beings who rebelled against God and rebel against Him still and against all that He created and against His purposes and against His plans and against His people. Yes, against his people. And we see here just a glimpse of what demons are like. Let's limit ourselves, trying to stay near to the text in front of us. We see here just a glimpse of what demons are like and what they're capable of. They can take over other created beings, possessing them possessing them. They can seemingly disconnect in some way and communicate directly while still possessing the human subject. They are very, very destructive. We're just drawing implications right out of these simple words of the text. They're very destructive, clearly aiming to tear 
down what God has made, perverting it, damaging it, destroying it if they can. And they seem to be very, very intelligent, seemingly knowing more than their human subjects, at least with regard to spiritual things and spiritual and ultimate truths. Very smart. Yet they are demons still. Their knowledge does not lead to submission to God or to the worship of Him. They are even, as we'll see, aware of their ultimate fate in their ongoing rebellion. And that Jesus is the, is the one, they know that Jesus is the one who will consign them to that ultimate fate. But that knowledge, in their case, breeds taunts, jeers, violence, hatred, and not repentance. What distinguishes saints from demons is loving obedience, not mere knowledge. Even the demons believe and know, maybe more than you, but they hate what they know. The commentator, Warren Wearsby, summarizing a bit what we see here, quote, this dramatic incident is most revealing It shows what Satan does for a man. This is interesting. It shows what Satan does for a man. Robs him of sanity and self-control. Fills him with fears. Robs him of the joys of home and friends. And if possible, condemns him to an eternity of judgment. It also reveals what society does for a man in need. Restrains him. Isolates him threatens him, but society is unable to change him. See then what Jesus Christ can do for a man whose whole life, within and without, is bondage and battle. What Jesus did for these two demoniacs, he will do for anyone else who needs him. Well, before we get to what he does for them, let's Grab hold of 29. The demons definitively know who Jesus is and that he will ultimately send them to their doom. Verse 29, behold, this is, a, this is quite something that the, the demons speak out of their possessed men. The demons cry. What have you to do with us? O Son of God, have you come here on earth? Have you come, have you come to the earth? You pre-existent one. <laughs> That's what's assumed there. Have you, have you come here to torment us before the time? They know a lot. They're way ahead of the disciples at this juncture, aren't they? 
Mark and Luke add that they called Jesus Son of the Most High God. So we got, oh, Son of God, Son of the Most High God, preexistent. Did you come here to the earth? So he was somewhere. Come here to the earth to torment us before the time of the judgment. Jesus is the one who will judge and cast. And Luke says they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Not yet. Please not yet. So demons, they, as it were, believe in the existence of God as they believe in the matter He created and in the deity of His Son, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God, as well as the reality of future judgment and the certainty of it if you rebel against the God who created all things and who sent His Son. They know the gospel really well. They also, as it were, believe in petitioning Jesus. I wouldn't go so far as to say pray. <laughs> but they, they believe in petitioning Jesus. They knew that Jesus had the ultimate power and authority to do as he wishes and therefore to send them into the herd of pigs. And, and so they, they beg him, as we'll see in a minute. They were even at this moment in time further along than the disciples themselves, as I said, at least in terms of mere knowledge. Again, they know, but they hate what they know. A solemn reminder then that it is possible it's, it's extremely possible to pass a knowledge test about Jesus Christ, even to acknowledge Jesus with your lips and not to acknowledge Him from the heart. To not, that is, to not know Him at all. At the end of the day, it is not mere knowledge of Jesus that saves. Not mere knowledge. It is Jesus Christ Himself who saves. Saving all who, by God's grace, lovingly obey Him and follow Him from the heart, having come to depend upon Him fully and alone for all that is needed for salvation, for life, for eternity. They turn from their sin, they turn to Him, and they walk with Him from the heart. Yes, knowledge, so important. You must come to love what you've come to know about Jesus. But the demons know It's not enough. They hate what they know. Well, let's get to the bit about the pigs. Verses 30 to 32. This is point two. The demons beg and Jesus commands. This is set the score there. The demons beg 
And Jesus commands. 30 and 31. 30 and 31. Now, a herd of many pigs, we're kind of, Matthew is saying, oh, a herd of many pigs is right over there, feeding at some distance. And the demons beg Jesus, say, if you cast us out, they, they know what's, a, <laughs> they, they know the score here. But one last ditch ever try here to get something that would maybe be more agreeable to them. They have not much to bargain with. But there's a bunch of pigs over there. Can you send us away into those pigs if you cast us out? Which it seems like that's what you're here to do. All right. They beg him. They beg him. Because why? Why, why the pigs? That's the age-old question for, for all of us as we read through this text time and time again. Because they prefer to at least have bodies to possess. I think that's an answer that's given. Maybe, but it would be strange to then proceed to immediately destroy those bodies, which is what they do. More likely is that they simply hate everything God's created. He's going to cast us out of the humans. Could we destroy something else? And for unknown reasons, though we'll consider a possibility or two, Jesus agrees with them. Okay. More likely is that they just simply hate all of God's creatures and also desire to just stir up as much hatred of Jesus as, as they're allowed to, to do. Demons are about violence, mischief, and destruction, all aimed at God, His purposes, and His people. Verse 32 then, Jesus sends the demons out of the men and into the pigs with a word. Verse 32, look there, and He said to them, Go. On his command, they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, this was unexpected. This whole herd of perhaps 2,000 pigs rushes down the steep bank into the sea. You can imagine, oh, okay, well, I guess that's happening now. Uh, and they die. They drown in the waters. Must have been a terrible sight. And Jesus commanded it. He demonstrates, whatever the case with the pigs, which we'll take up in a sec, but he's demonstrating here with quick, uh, quick precision his ultimate an unassailable power and authority over all powers of darkness and evil spirits. They yield to him entirely. Note that well. Don't accept any kind of thinking, any kind of theology 
where demons go toe-to-toe with God and Jesus and hold their own. You throw that kind of theology out. Don't accept any kind of thinking or theology which calls itself Christian, where demons have power over you, Christian, and you need some sort of guru outside of the Scriptures. No, here's, here is the answer. Truth about Jesus. No one stands toe-to-toe with Jesus. No demon. No demon. Note it well. Don't ever forget this. Troubled believer. Put-upon believer. Downtrodden believer. Suffering believer. Sick believer. Tired believer. Burdened, scarred, limping believer. Jesus is not limited in his authority, and no one and nothing can stand in his way and prevent him from accomplishing his plans and purposes and all that he purposes for his people. No one. He is not limited or stymied by anything in all of creation, no matter how it may look in the moment or how it may feel or what someone may tell you. Here is the truth of the matter in God's Word. Jesus, ultimate, unassailable power and authority over all powers of darkness and evil spirits in the service of his brothers and sisters. He's given you his Son. The Father has given you his Son. Will he not also then therefore give you all things? And you need to know the name of a demon to get power over it? Come now. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Go. You are never in a disadvantage, brother and sister in Christ when you have Christ. One word. That's what Matthew wants us to see. One little word. And the same power and authority is in service for your good believers. He can pull the reins on angelic beasts. He can hush a storm that would crush cities. He can heal any disease in an instant, even with a thought from a distance. He can recreate dead flesh. He can reanimate dead bodies. He can multiply five loaves and two small fishes and feed tens of thousands, and he can turn. Miracle of all miracles. Sinners into saints. Will you not trust him? 
Will you look elsewhere for power? What a fool's errand. Will you not wait on him and his timing and trust his timing? He is worthy. Yes, but what about the waste of all the pigs? Seems like such a waste. (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe they fished them out and made some bacon. I don't know. No, but it's a fair question still. I don't actually, I I don't really care. I've come to terms with it. But let me (laughs) explain to you how, how, how to come to terms with this. If someone were to say, oh, well, why, or if that's you, why the waste of all these pigs? Wasn't there another way? Isn't, isn't Jesus considerate of the lives of the pigs too or compassionate to the owners of the pigs? Doesn't he care about their income? There could have been another way. Well, surely there could. And 10 million trillion other realities that happen in his world all the time, every moment. But you forget, he who is creator and master of nature is also its ultimate owner. And he may do as he pleases. He doesn't have to ask you. He doesn't have to ask me. He doesn't have to run it by us. Hey, what would you think if I, uh, you know, he doesn't have to do that. And his purposes, if you believe everything that's been written so far from like Genesis 1-1 to this point, perhaps you could trust him with this. Perhaps you could Just simply accept that his purposes are always righteous and good, if not immediately understood. If not immediately understood. But perhaps the pig stampede dramatically proved that the former demon-possessed men had indeed been freed. Here you can see. And perhaps further in the light of, of the verses to come, the loss of the herd became a way of exposing the real values of the people. As one commentator put it, it would need to be demonstrated that the people preferred pigs to persons, swine to the Savior. Well, he has his ways, and I'm totally good with it. We can say for sure here that Jesus puts spiritual and human realities above other considerations. Can't we at least say that? The release of the two men who had been demon-possessed is clearly of more importance to him than the loss of the 2,000 pigs. It's more important to free two men from demonic possession than to protect the income of the pig farmers. This is the math there. Jesus brought peace to these men's lives and to the community where for a long time they had been causing significant trouble. That was worth more to Jesus than the lives of the pigs. We can at least say that. Anything more, I don't don't feel a need. Let's move to the third point then in the last verses, 33 and 34. A whole city though. Come on, guys. A whole city begs Jesus to leave. 33 and 34, let's read them. This is all happening, you know, dust and <laughs> screaming pigs and dust and chaos. The herdsmen fled going into the city, they telling everything to everyone, especially what had happened to the 
demon-possessed men. You just wouldn't even believe what happened. And behold, (laughs) 34, all the city comes out to the tombs to meet Jesus, perhaps storming, perhaps with some Galilean form of pitchforks. I don't know. Get a noose or whatever, you know? They're going to get him. I don't know. Who knows? But they see him. They beg him. They beg him to leave. Not just the shore. Not just outside of their city. The whole region. Luke says, because of fear. Because of fear. This is the sad part of the story. These men were freed from demon possession. That's great. Jesus is showing his, his, his unassailable power and authority. Wonderful. But this is the sad part of the story. They, they didn't drive him away or attempt to stone him because they were afraid of his power. And so they don't welcome him either. Certainly they had questions like the disciples raised. What sort of man is this? What, what sort of man can do this sort of thing? What sort of man can command the demons? But they didn't want to know more. They didn't want to know anything more. And they didn't want to follow this man, Jesus. I don't even want to hear about it. They wanted him gone. As far away as he could get. And as soon as possible. They wanted business as usual. Business as usual. J.C. Ryle commenting with bridge-building precision, quote, there are only too many like these Gadarenes. There are only too many like these Gadarenes. There are thousands who care not one for Christ or Satan so long as they can make a little more money and have a little more of the good things of this world. From this spirit may we be delivered. Against this spirit may we ever watch and pray. It is very common. It is awfully infectious. Let us recollect every morning that we have souls to be saved and that we shall one day die and after that be judged. Let us beware of loving the world more than Christ. Will we love the sovereign Christ more than anything in this world? The ultimate and unassailable power and authority of Jesus Christ over all creation in service to the plans and purposes and people of God. That's what we've seen. That's what's demonstrated here in God's Word. It's real. It's true. It happened. This is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of all. And the demons have no power over Him. No angelic being can keep God from carrying out all of His plans and purposes for you, believer, for your good, for His glory. Purchased all of this purchased by the very blood of Jesus 
Every good thing, everything turned for good, every grace, every bit of sustaining grace through troubled waters, every victory over sin, every victory over a demon, every forgiven sin, every resistance to the power of the system, uh, the world's systems that would oppose God, every bit of mercy to the road-weary Christian, all of God's grace to His people, His covenant people, paid for in full by means of Jesus sacrificing Himself in our place. He has done it, and He will do it, because He has power over every demon, over Satan, over every one of our sins, and over death itself. See the Christ. Look upon Him. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Come to Him. Walk with Him. Abide with Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is a pleasure and a joy to open your word and listen to Jesus and watch him obey you and, and preach and teach and demonstrate his power. It is a joy. And that you've put this power the very power with which you raised him from the dead, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, you put in service of us, and saving us, and indwelling us, and providing for us, and bringing us, keeping us, bringing us all the way home. What, what, what a privileged people we are, all because of Christ. His perfect life, lived under the law, His substitutionary death in our place, His miraculous resurrection, and His ascension to Your right hand, Father, and His intercession for us. You and He are one, along with the Spirit, and You keep, You keep for that day. We are a thankful people. And as we turn to communion, we pray that as we partake in the family meal, that you would remind us of that cost, the very blood of the Son, through which we are brought near then to you, adopted into your family. Help us to count the cost, but help us to be joyful that it has been paid for us and for your glory. Help us to ponder these things, to be repenting, to be growing in trust even as we worship. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.